morning. Welcome to FAM. We are excited. Everyone is here this morning for this Hope Sunday. And uh, some of you who are maybe here for the first time or the first time in a long time and you're wondering who FAM Church is, what are we about? Well, we are here to connect people to Christ. We want everyone in this community of Mulberry to know who Jesus is through us as a church, connecting them to, through, to Christ. And that's who we are. And uh, we're excited that you're here this morning. If you're a first-time guest, first time in a long time, as I said, we're really excited that you're here. And if you're here this morning and you're sitting in your seat going, man, I don't know what I'm doing here this morning. I really don't belong in church because, uh, because I just don't know. I just don't. I'm nervous. I'm anxious. I'm not sure if this is the spot for me. Can I tell you we're excited that you're, you're here. This is the spot for you. We just want you to sit back and relax because we believe that God has something for you this morning. And uh, we just finished up our series called Keys to the Kingdom. And uh, it was uh, the last three messages. And it was about where we're going as a church. And so if you missed any of that series, uh, you can go out and, uh, to myfamchurch.com and watch the videos, iTunes, Stitcher Radio, our Fam Church app to listen to the messages. And if you are a regular here at Fam Church, you really, and you missed any of those, we need you to go out and listen to them so that you know where we're going, so that you know who we are, because this is going to be our DNA. This is going to be who we are as a church going forward to try and reach this community. And so I need you to know what that is and be engaged in that. Now, last week I said we were going to finish letters from Patmos this morning, but I forgot that it was Hope Sunday. And so we're going to have an extra week to wait for letters from Patmos again. And, uh, and so this morning we've got Hope Sunday. And so uh, sit back and relax and listen to this. I'm just going to tell you, first of all, my story of how I found hope, my story of how I found who Jesus was. And I grew up in a suburban home in, uh, in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Uh, it was just your normal Midwestern home, okay? It was both my parents worked. We weren't wealthy. We weren't well off, but uh, we had enough money to kind of basically make it through life. You know, my parents could pay the bills. We had all of our basic needs and necessities. And we weren't a church family for most of my years growing up. That's not where we were at. That's not what we did. My, uh, my, my dad, he really did not like church whatsoever, period. He still really doesn't like church. I mean, he doesn't go, and uh, he's got a reason for that, and I'm not going to share his story with you if he's ever here on a Sunday morning. You guys are more than welcome to go ask him, and uh, I'll let you know when he's here, uh, but uh, he doesn't... Uh he doesn't come visit very often. But, uh, but my mom, she grew up in a Lutheran church, and, uh, and she thought it was important for her kids to be a part of uh, something called confirmation. Does anybody have a church background that involved confirmation, okay? Yeah, the Catholic church did it. The Lutheran church did it. I'm not sure if anyone else did it. But uh, so starting in sixth grade, my mom said, you know what? We got to start going to church so that we can do this confirmation thing. And so that's exactly what we did. Starting in sixth grade, we started attending this church. And, and it was a Lutheran church in our neighborhood. And so from sixth to ninth grade, I went through this process. And it was, you'd take classes uh, one night a week. We'd have to go to the church and take a class, and it was teaching you all about the Lutheran Church's beliefs and doctrines and, and all of that stuff. And so, you know, sixth through ninth grade, I did this whole thing, and then at the start of the 10th grade year, they did this confirmation ceremony. And what they did was they put you in these robes, you had this big, long robe, and you made a stole, and you put a stole around your neck, and you'd get up in front of the church, and they'd read your favorite Bible verse to the church, and, uh, and then go through this prayer process, and then you'd take your first communion. Okay, and so that was the basic story story of confirmation. And, uh, and uh, so we got to the day, we were a couple of weeks before our confirmation, and uh, uh, they, they said, okay, now you got to pick out your favorite Bible verse. 
Well, the deal with me was is that I hadn't opened a Bible, okay? And if you can believe this, I was able to get through confirmation without opening a Bible and reading anything in there. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, that's the way it worked. And so, so we're standing in our kitchen, and my mom says, you know what, you need a favorite Bible verse because they're going to read this when you get up there on Sunday morning to do this whole process. And so I'm like, oh, man, what do I do? So I sat down, and I started watching TV, and uh, as I was watching this football game, I saw this guy when they were kicking a field goal holding a sign that said John 3.16 in the back of the end zone, and uh, so I looked that up, and it said, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life, and I said, that's the verse for me. That's my favorite verse, okay? And that's not really the way it happened. That, was my fa- that ended up being my favorite verse, but how that came about, this is the real story, is I was like, quick, give me a Bible. And so I got a Bible, and I started just flipping through the pages and sticking my finger in, and, and then reading the verse that my finger landed on. Has anyone ever done that before? Am I the only one who's, who's done something like that? Anyway, so I'm standing in our dining room, and I'm just getting all these weird verses. And then finally my mom says, well, what about John 3.16? I'm like, all right, we'll go with that. And uh, it seemed lots of people in my confirmation class must have had that same conversation with their mom because there was many people whose favorite verse was John 3.16. But at the end of confirmation, uh, at the beginning of my 10th grade year, that was my church experience for a long time. And what happened after that was a wild and crazy ride, not as wild as some of you have maybe taken in the room, but it was enough for me. And it started with uh, eighth grade, uh, a friend of ours uh, stealing alcohol from their friend's liquor cabinet and then having a sleepover at another friend's house where we, we, uh, we broke out the alcohol in the middle of the night and, and started drinking it. And it uh, kind of led down a road where I ended up in court being charged with a felony as a, uh, as a, uh, as a minor. And, uh, and so I had to spend uh, the rest of my teenage years uh, on probation. And uh, um, I had to be, well, I was on probation, committing a felony, and uh, the judge basically looked at me when, we finished, when he fin- finished up his sentencing, and he said, you know what, if I ever see you in this court again, you're going to have problems. And I knew what he meant by that, because where we lived, uh, there was the uh, Ramsey County uh, juvenile detention center was in our, uh, our community. And so every day we would drive by this detention center. It was this facility. It was this massive buildings with fencing and barbed wire around it. And you never saw the kids outside. And, and so I knew what the judge was talking about when he said that to me. And so I said to myself, you know what? I don't want to end up in that place because the last thing I want to be is held captive against my will. And so I said, you know what? I've got to be really careful with the stuff I'm doing so that I don't get caught because I don't want to get caught and end up in that place. And so I kind of took my stuff stealth. I kind of went underground for a while. I kind of did things, you know, all of the stuff that I was doing, I did it on the down low. Now, sometimes my stealth mode wasn't as great as at other times. I mean, I got caught with several things. And and fortunately for me, though, it never involved the law. And I'm very surprised by that because I was so stupid. Okay, listen, 17-year-olds, you're not as smart as you think you are. Most of the time, you're not that bright, okay? When you're trying to cover things up, people know you're trying to cover things up, all right? So just, just so you know that. But, uh, but 
I, I made it through high school. I, I didn't do very well in high school because I didn't care. I didn't study. I didn't do homework. I didn't do any of that stuff. I just wanted to get through school so I could get on with my life because my plan was 18, graduate high school, get a job, start working, make some money, and have a life, okay? But my parents said, no, that's unacceptable. You got to go to college. And so I headed off to college, and that may have been a bad plan for me because when I got into college, things started to spiral even more out of control in my life. And uh, I started to get into, you know, the crowds that I was hanging with. We were drinking. We were, we were smoking weed. We were doing those kind of things. And uh, uh, what happened was is a, friend, a bunch of us got together and we said, hey, we need to make some money. And so the plan was, we go, hey, we got an idea. You know, all of the fraternities, on, I was at the University of Minnesota, and all the fraternities on campus had stopped the partying, okay? You know, the reputation of fraternities used to be that they were the party central, and we're like, you know what? We need to start a fraternity and have it be the party fraternity because all the other ones were stopping partying. And so this is what we did because we thought we could make some money charging people to come into this party, and that's how we could finance our life. Well, um, Here's what happened. That lasted exactly one party because we were in this house. We had this house uh, near Fraternity Row on the campus, and uh, we're, uh, we're, we're doing our, we're, we had our first party, and we advertised it really well. I mean, by an hour after we opened the doors to the house, there was literally no room to walk in the house. I don't know how to estimate how many people were there, but my guess would be at least 500. I mean, you were walking down hallways like this. I mean, you couldn't get anywhere. The place was just jam-packed, and so, and so we decided, you know, we got to shut this thing down, or we got to close the doors, not let anyone else in, because we're going to have trouble. Well, two guys show up, and they really wanted to party. And uh, we said, sorry, we're full. You can't come in. And they said, okay, we'll see about that. And so they, they came back about 20 minutes later, both of them with guns, and they started shooting the place. All right, well, you start shooting guns, and guess what happens? Police show up, right? So the, police, the Minneapolis Police Department shows up in force, raids the house, uh, it, it was just chaos. It was craziness. But those three years of living my life like that, it just, it burned me out. It wiped me out. It just sucked my life dry. And so by 1990, I was done with life. I remember I was standing there on New Year's Eve of 1990, and I was saying to myself, man, I just don't want to go on with life anymore. This isn't fun. This isn't enjoyable. I'm not having a good time doing all of this stuff. And uh, I had a friend at work who, uh, he was a Christian, and he was always talking about Jesus, and I just wasn't sure about him, but at one time he gave me this little thing that uh, talked about Jesus in it, this little booklet, and I usually threw stuff like that away. Uh, however, um, this time, for some reason, he had given me this. I threw it in my desk drawer, and uh, that night, on New Year's Eve of 1990, I just went into my desk drawer, I grabbed this thing, I read this booklet that he gave me, I prayed the prayer at the end of it, and I gave my life to Jesus. And see, the most amazing thing about that was, I wasn't even sure anything happened, but the next day I walked into work, and people looked at me when I walked through the doors, and they said, what did you do last night? I'm like, why? And they said, you look different today. I mean, they could literally see it in my face. They could see it on me that I was different, that I'd been changed, that I'd been transformed, that God had done something in my life. After years of living a life without hope, without anything, suddenly hope had been restored in my life and I was a new person, I was a different person. And in a few minutes, we're gonna talk about that and anybody who wants an opportunity to do that, give their life to Jesus to restore hope, we're gonna do that. But I wanna go on to something else because I know that there's probably some of you sitting in here this morning are saying, wow, that's great. 
You know, that's a nice story. But that story doesn't do anything for me. You know why it doesn't do anything for me? Because I've never been in trouble with the police. I've never touched alcohol or drugs a day in my life. I've never had problems or issues. I've got a good life. I, I, I've got a good job. I've got uh, friends. I've got good kids. I've got a nice house. I'm, I'm living the American dream. And everything is wonderful. And so what does this Jesus have to do with my situation? It sounds like he is a guy who's there for those who screw up their lives to help them get in an order. But for those of us who our lives are in order, he doesn't have anything to offer us. And so that's what I want to explore for the next few minutes. And uh, to do that, I want to turn to uh, John chapter 3. And we're going to look at the chapter that my favorite Bible verse comes from, from my confirmation. And so if you have a Bible, I invite you to turn there. John is the fourth book in the New Testament. You've got Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then there's John. If you have problems finding it or didn't bring a Bible, we're going to have it on the screen behind me so you can follow along. But first, let's talk about John for a minute, the guy who, who wrote this letter. The, uh, the first thing that we need to know is that his name was John. Boom, your mind was just blown, right? You did not see that coming at all, did you? Okay, yeah, this guy's name was John, and he was a fisherman. How many of you have ever had encounters with fishermen? Like real fishermen. I'm not talking like the guy who's out, you know, fishing on the weekends and stuff like that, but a guy who's on a boat all the days of his life, and he fishes, fishes, fishes. That's how he makes his living. Like, you've watched the show Deadliest Catch? Okay, when you see those guys, as a general rule, they're kind of rough, aren't they? They're kind of rough dudes. I mean, they curse, they smoke, they drink, they get in fights at the bar. I mean, these are some rough, rough dudes. And so here is Jesus. He goes into this town, and, uh, and John would spend his days out on the lake fishing, throwing nets and dragging it in, throwing nets and dragging it in. Then once he caught fish, he'd load them up, and he'd wheel them into the market in town, and he would sell these fish. And one day Jesus walks into town, and he just says, hey, John, I got something for you and your brother. And John's like, what's that? He's like, I don't want you to fish anymore for fish. I want to make you fishers of men. And John and his brother and their partner Peter are just like, yeah, I'm down with that. Let's go. And so they like literally just got up and they started to follow Jesus. And they went on this three-year crazy life with Jesus. Now when I say crazy, I'm not talking about crazy like I had kind of crazy. I'm talking crazy Jesus kind of crazy. Where they would wander the countryside. They didn't know where their next meal was going to come from. They didn't know if they were going to get a shower. They didn't know where they were going to be sleeping. They just kind of wandered the countryside talking to anybody who would listen. And in that time, they saw incredible miracles. They saw, you know, the thousands of people get fed from five loaves and two fishes. They saw the dead raised. They saw body parts restored and healed on people. They saw all kinds of miraculous, crazy things going on. That was John's life as he walked with Jesus. And with that, let's read John chapter 3, verses 1 through 21. This is what it says. Now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. Jesus replied, very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. 
How can someone be born when they are old, Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb and be born. Jesus answered, very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the spirit. How can this be, Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and you do not understand these things? Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know and we testify to what we have seen, but still you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. All right, so here's this encounter, Jesus and this man named Nicodemus. And so who was Nicodemus? Nicodemus was a Pharisee. And uh, back in the day, the Pharisee was the religious leaders in the Jewish culture, in the Jewish place. They, they followed all the rules and the regulations of the Jewish law. They were very politically active. They were involved in politics, and they were very well educated and very well off financially. And this meant that they had influence. They had influence over the, the celebrities and the other leaders and well-known people of the day. The Pharisees were not somebody that was just not known. They were well-known. Uh, their kids went to private schools. They had nice houses in the best part of town. They drove the best cars. They got the best food. They, they had lives of privilege that no one else got. But not only was Nicodemus a Pharisee, he was also a part of the Sanhedrin. And the Sanhedrin was the central Jewish authority for the city of Jerusalem. They ran the city of Jerusalem. They were in charge of the city of Jerusalem. They got to uh, administer the city. They created policies for religious instruction for the synagogues throughout the Roman Empire. And they were in charge of making sure the services were conducted conducted at the temple, and finally they ministered justice in cases where the Roman Empire was not enforcing something, but Jewish law dictated something must be done. And there were 70 members of the Sanhedrin. They were cho chosen from the leading priestly families of Israel. So these guys were the elite, okay? These people lived nice, cushy, easy lives. They had need of nothing, they weren't out looking for hope. They weren't out looking for something more. They had, their, they had it all in this life. They felt they had all the hope they needed. They could take vacations when they wanted to take vacations and where they wanted to take vacations. And uh, they, they could do, you know, they kind of could live their lives how they wanted to. And this was not something that was common back then. This was not the norm. We see it more today with people having more prosperity. But as a general rule, back then, this was not the case. And so here we are, Nicodemus had all of that, he was living the American dream, and yet he shows up to Jesus in secret at night 
to meet him. See, Nicodemus had nothing to gain by talking to Jesus. He did, however, have a lot to lose. See, he could have lost his position of power by talking to Jesus. He could have lost his position of authority by talking to Jesus. He could have lost his nice, comfortable life by going in and talking to Jesus. And yet, here is Nicodemus. He went in and he talked to Jesus because he knew something. See, he knew that something else was missing from his life. He knew that there was a piece missing that he couldn't quite put his finger on that he needed to get a hold of, and so he thought Jesus might have the answer today. And those of you that are here this morning and you're saying, yeah, I kind of get that because I don't really need anything more, I want to say just like uh, Nicodemus showed up at Jesus' house, you're here this morning, and I think God wants to say something to you today. And so there's three things I want to say. The first thing is, no matter how much you have it all together, it doesn't change the fact that we are all sinful. See, Jesus in this conversation with Nicodemus, he never once confronted Nicodemus about his sin. However, he did make sure to point out to Nicodemus that yes, indeed, there was sin in his life that he needed to take care of. He said, listen, you can't get into heaven on your own merit. There's nothing that you can do. There's nothing that you accomplish. You can't be a good enough person to get into heaven. It takes more than being a good person to get to where I am from and where I am going. There's something that keeps you from that, and that thing that keeps you from getting into God's presence is your sin. Jesus tells Nicodemus, there is only one way to get free from your sin, and it's by believing and trusting in the name of Jesus, and the same is true for all of us. No matter our background, no matter who we've been, no matter the life we've lived, the only way that we can enter into heaven is through Jesus. And if we don't do that, we're gonna miss out on the greatest thing that God has for each and every single one of us. And some of you are saying, but wait, how can I have sin? I'm a good person. I don't feel guilty about anything in my life. If I'm doing something wrong, if I'm sinning, shouldn't I feel guilty? And if I don't feel guilty, doesn't, me, doesn't that mean that everything's okay? So let's, let's, let's look at it this way. How many of you, when you're driving down the road, have ever sped okay as you're speeding down the road and you see the speed limit sign do you feel guilty seeing that sign like you're cruising on i4 doing 85 and a 70 and you see that sign that says 70 do you go oh my gosh i'm such a terrible person okay most of us don't okay most of us go 70 whatever who cares you know we don't feel guilty about it does that change the fact that we're doing something wrong because we don't feel guilty about it? No, it doesn't change the fact that we're still breaking the law. Just because we don't feel guilty about something doesn't mean that there's nothing wrong. And it's the same thing when it comes to the things of God, okay? It's because we've lived in a world where we just don't hear about God. We just don't talk about God. We don't live in this world where God is all present. And and so we just don't feel guilty a lot of times about the things that God has said we should and shouldn't be doing. I mean, that's where I was at before I found Jesus, before before I was a follower of Christ, man. I didn't feel guilty about the things I was doing. I didn't feel guilty about um, the crazy stuff I was into because I wasn't in that world. I didn't have God around me. There was no guilt in my life. But that doesn't mean that I wasn't doing something wrong. 
I thought everything was okay. And just like me, if you are not living in that world of Jesus and you're not feeling guilty for your sin, that doesn't mean everything's okay. That doesn't mean everything's okay. Whether or not we feel guilty, there really is no hope for any of us without Jesus. I mean, Jesus tells this story about Moses and the, the serpent in the wilderness, the snake. And um, so some of you, if you're new to church, are thinking, oh, is this where they bring out the snakes? Yes, this is the spot. No, I'm just kidding. Um, that's not what Jesus is, is talking about here. Um, he's talking about an event in the Old Testament where through a crazy series of stuff, some serpents end up coming into the camp. Like, like picture a bunch of rattlesnakes being released in here this morning and just crawling around the floor, okay? Some crazy series of events where our room is filled with rattlesnakes. That's kind of what happened here. And, and, and so they've got all these snakes crawling around in the camp and they're biting people and people are, people are getting, uh, they're getting uh, poisoned. And back then, if you got poisoned by snakes, if you got bit by a snake, you didn't go to the hospital get an anti-venom shot and everything was good, okay? You just prayed that the venom didn't, the venom didn't kill you, okay? That's what they could do. And so, and so here we are, these snakes come in, they start biting people and, uh, and God says to Moses, hey, build a serpent, put it on a pole, stick it up in front of everybody and tell them, hey, if you get bit, just look at the snake on the pole, don't worry about anything else and you'll be healed. And some of you are thinking, that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard in my life, Right? I mean, think about that. You're God. Can't you just kill all the snakes and, uh, and uh, just heal all those who are sick? Well, there was a point. There was a reason that God did it that way. So you're in this room, and all these snakes are in here. Are you panicking? Who's panicking in here if there's millions of rattlesnakes? Okay, a few of you are. The rest of you seem chill, so that's good. Um, so let's say one of these snakes bite you. What happens? You're in meltdown mode, right? Oh my God, I'm going to die, right? That's the thought going through our head. Well, what the point that God was making in having them look at the serpent on a pole is that he wanted them to calm down, focus on him, and realize that he was the healer, he was the savior, and he was going to take care of it. And as long as they could get their heart and their mind to a place where they could look at that bronze snake and allow the peace and presence of God to come through their lives... They were going to be fine. They were going to be saved from their situation. And see, just like the Israelites in the desert, we've all been infected with this poison. We've been infected with this poison of sin, whether or not we know we are, um, we, whether we feel guilty about it or not. And, and there's a cure, but it's not the cure that we think it should be. It's a man nailed to a cross, hanging on a cross for us and for our sins. That is the cure in this situation. That is the anti-venom. That's what Jesus told our friend Nicodemus. And I'm sure Nicodemus didn't think there was anything wrong with him because of how together his life was. He was a religious leader, a good moral person, but it didn't matter because no one can remove sin from his or her life. There's only one cure. The cure, was, uh, the cure for Nicodemus, the cure for me, the cure for everyone else is Jesus on a cross. But the question becomes, are you going to take the cure or are you going to go on with poison in your system that will eventually kill you because you don't feel guilty and your life is good? The decision is yours. The second thing that I would point out is that you may have a good life right now, but with Jesus, he tells us we can have more than that. Listen to this. He promises us a rich and satisfying life if we follow him. John 10.10 says this. 
The thief's purpose is to steal and kill and destroy. My purpose is to give them a rich and satisfying life. You know what? You may have a good life, but Jesus wants to give you a rich and satisfying life. And the only place that can be found is with Jesus. It doesn't matter how good your life is. Jesus can make it better. So how do we get that rich, satisfying life? To get that rich, satisfying life, we have to live the rest of our lives and follow Jesus the way he asked. Here it is in Mark 8, 34 through 37. Then calling the crowd to join his disciples, he said, if any of you wants to be my follower, you must turn from your selfish ways, take up your cross, and follow me. If you try to hang on to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake and the sake of the good news, you will save it. And what do you benefit if you gain the whole world but lose your own soul? Is anything worth more than your soul? Our full abundant life only comes with us turning to Jesus and saying, you know what, Jesus, I set all of my life before you. I give it all to you. I sacrifice my selfish ways, my selfish desires, my selfish plans, and I go in the direction that you want me to go. And when we do that, we can have this full, rich, satisfying, abundant life here on this earth. Now, it may look different than how you picture it, but it's out there and it's available for you to grab hold of. Jesus knows this is the way because he's the one who formed us. He was the one who created us. He knows us and will put us on track to fulfill the purposes that he has for our life. Because that's when we get in the zone, when we get into the full, abundant life. It's when we're living the purpose that God created us for. 